Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash SXQ. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS. Welcome to this Peer Voice panel discussion on type 2 diabetes. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Dr. Harpreet Bajaj and Professor Pinar Topseva. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials. Hello, my name is uh, Harpreet Bajaj. I'm an endocrinologist and a researcher at LMC Healthcare in Toronto in Canada. I want to welcome you all to this activity, which is titled Innovating Our Approach to the Initiation of Insulin in Type 2 Diabetes, the why and the how. Joining me in this discussion is my esteemed colleague and dear friend, uh, Professor Pinar Topsever from Ajibadem University School of Medicine in Istanbul, Turkey. So welcome, Pinar. Now in this first presentation, we're gonna go through some of the causes and effects uh, and investigate delayed initiation of insulin in patients with uh, type 2 diabetes, where we will discuss on the current role and the unmet needs associated with basal insulin treatment in the management of uh, type 2 diabetes. Uh, we know that diabetes is a leading cause of death uh, and morbidity worldwide. Uh, it, is, it was estimated that uh, almost uh, 500 million people or about a half billion people live with uh, diabetes and the estimates uh, suggest that there will be a further rise in the next uh, few decades now, diabetes complications include microvascular complications of kidney problems, uh, blindness, uh, as well as neuropathy, as well as macrovascular complications, which includes heart attack and strokes. Now, let's, let me ask uh, Professor Topsaver, uh, what uh, do you think about the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes, which is predominantly the type of diabetes that we see in, uh, in the patients across the world? And when do you think is the need for insulin in the management of uh, type 2 diabetes? Well, uh, thank you, Harpreet. The first thing that comes into mind in terms of pathophysiology is insulin resistance, but there's also beta cell dysfunction. And this is all enhanced by uh, this um, uh, the, the onset of uh, the disease. Once we have diagnosed our, our patient with type 2 diabetes, we can do tertiary prevention in terms of delaying or preventing the onset of uh, complications. But the natural history of disease, unfortunately, is a progressive one. So what is much more striking and um, maybe alarming for, for a clinician is if we term it dysglycemic legacy, meaning that if we don't have early uh, glycemic control, afterwards, um, uh, at some point, we are uh, the, the patients are beyond uh, good and evil. From the UK PDS, we know that um, the patients who have been uh, diagnosed uh, with type 2 diabetes, in average, after six years, uh, were requiring exogenous insulin. So it's very important to initiate insulin in time 
and uh, do not fall into this therapeutic inertia, you know, waiting with uh, uh, A1C going up to uh, something like 9%, uh, and then it would be too late because uh, the complications would already have been uh, primed. Dear um, Harpreet, what do guidelines suggest about uh, insulin uh, treatment? According to the ADA ESD consensus, as well as uh, guidelines across the world, um, there's not one clear number for glucose uh, level that is uh, targeted for insulin therapy. Of course, uh, uh, all the guidelines say that uh, we should consider immediate starting of insulin um, if certain context is there, which could include uh, severe hyperglycemia, especially if there is acute glycemic dysregulation or decompensation symptoms, uh, which could include polyuria, polydipsia, or weight loss, uh, any of those symptoms, as well as when type 1 diabetes is suspected. So we're not clear whether the, uh, the patient is presenting with type 2 diabetes or type 1, we should always then start with insulin. But otherwise, if we are talking about, um, you know, run-of-the-mill type 2 diabetes, generally um, uh, the guidelines do suggest uh, initiating insulin whenever the personalized or individualized A1C targets are not being met with uh, other non-insulin therapies. So it could be after one agent, two agents, three agents uh, that are not insulin uh, pharmacotherapies, that when you realize that without insulin, the, the A1C target would not be met is when uh, insulin is recommended. Now, of course, uh, I should mention that fasting glucose uh, plays a major role as to, as to when that is, because there's not a lot of uh, pharmacotherapy agents um, uh, that can help with the fasting uh, glucose levels uh, outside of metformin, uh, maybe SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1 receptor agonists, or uh, thiazolidinones. Most of the other agents uh, favor postprandial glucose control. So fasting glucose uh, is elevated, uh, and, and then insulin should be at least considered. Uh, most guidelines across the world, as well as the ADA-ACT consensus, uh, they do recommend starting with a basal insulin-first approach, uh, starting with 10 units, uh, or if you're a kilogram uh, per day kind of a uh, person, you could choose to start 0.1 to 0.2 units per kilogram per day, uh, usually at bedtime, but there's more flexibility with the longer-acting analogs. Uh, many times it makes sense uh, for, for the individual to take it in the morning because of their work schedule, etc. as well. So the basal insulin then should be targeted to a fasting glucose target, which is recommended in the guideline, usually uh, 7 millimoles per liter or less uh, for fasting glucose. Or if you're a milligram per deciliter person, then it's usually 125 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, and then if uh, basal insulin is not enough is when we talk about what to do further. But before we do that, it's important to make sure that the basal insulin itself has been titrated to the target. One of the common uh, uh, challenges that we see in real world is not enough basal insulin therapy. What I mean is uh, in the trials, an average insulin dose per day is about 40 to 50 units, whereas in some of the real world studies, um, you know, an average uh, dose uh, that, is, that is titrated to is about 20 to 30 units. Um, that means there's more inertia in terms of uh, titrating to the right dose to, to achieve the targets. 
but also this question of over basalization is there as well, where we sometimes over titrate or over overcompensate the basal needs uh, of the patient and actually uh, prescribe a higher dose that also covers some of the prandial uh, needs of the of the patient as well. Um, so kind of like uh, using a once a day in the morning um, or in the evening dinner meal. Uh, with the with the first generation uh, basal insulin analogs, sometimes has been used to cover kind of the spike that you get uh, with the major meal of the day as well. And sometimes uh, that can be challenging, especially if uh, there are periods of fasting, etc., that happen or exercise that can lead to more hypoglycemia. Yeah, maybe uh, I should ask you, uh, Pinar, from your perspective in the real world. Why do you think uh, there's a delay in basal insulin initiation? And maybe you could uh, run us through some of uh, uh, the uh, solutions to that delay uh, as well. A1C target in real life. Um, uh, unfortunately, it looks uh, much uh, different because there is this um, delayed in intensification, this therapeutic inertia. You see here from uh, the A1C levels, uh, levels like 9%, uh, where uh, the, there has been a very long and uh, actually severe um, grade of, of uh, dysglycemia going on, uh, which would very much enhance this vascular aging process. The later you kick in with the insulin, the harder it will get for you to get glycemic control uh, because this uh, process is, uh, as we already discussed, it's a paired process between um, uh, insulin uh, deficiency and also insulin resistance. This um, therapeutic inertia is really something we need to avoid. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, uh, and, and moving on, uh, would you say uh, from your clinical experience, uh, Professor Topsaver, what are some of the barriers to this initiation? Why do we see this delay and how can uh, clinicians overcome these barriers? Well, there, there are many. For instance, in my um, country, and I come from Turkey, it's a cultural thing maybe. Um, uh, insulin, If uh, when we talk uh, to our patients about uh, initiating insulin, they say, I'm addicted to insulin. Will I be addicted to insulin? So this uh, notion of being addicted to something is something which holds a lot of patients back. Even if we want to initiate the patient, patient is not willing, then a lot of patients say, well, uh, my, my body is producing it and it doesn't work. So what would I benefit from some injected insulin? Um, uh, then um, this idea of insulin um, initiation of the need of insulin treatment uh, being a personal failure. So I did so well. I'm at the end. Now I need this, this uh, injection. Mm, and of course, the idea of, you know, pricking yourself uh, every day uh, is something that a lot of people uh, find uh, uh, scary. 
Um, and um, the, the myths about, you know, hypoglycemia, if, if we don't make sure we um, inform and counsel and educate our patients properly, they, they leave the consultation room with, with the fear of uh, fainting uh, any minute uh, due to the fact that they are now using insulin. Actually, uh, now we are quite lucky because we do have a lot of help from information technology. Uh, which uh, used not to be the case in, in previous years. And uh, a lot of things that our patients um, would uh, consider to be, you know, burdensome or, or things that uh, cause them anxiety can, can be overcome, actually, uh, by uh, information technology. Um, uh, so these improved devices and shared care model is a great thing. So nurse-assisted, nurse-led uh, chronic disease management, diabetes is a perfect, uh, you know, case uh, where, where this uh, would work and does work. Let me just summarize um, uh, what we've discussed. We've discussed that, uh, of course, uh, diabetes, especially type 2 diabetes, is a global burden that is expanding. And many of the people with type 2 diabetes will require insulin for glycemic control. And despite that pathophysiology being very clear and the guidelines being very clear when the need of initiation of insulin is, there is this therapeutic inertia in uh, type 2 diabetes to initiate insulin despite not achieving the targets. And some of that therapeutic inertia is from the patient side, but also from the provider side as well, as was uh, highlighted uh, by Dr. Top Saver. And this early failure to reach these glycemic targets then leads to dysglycemic legacy, which can lead to more complications uh, later on. And of course, uh, we at this time have multiple basal insulin agents and regimens uh, that can be used, uh, but hopefully we'll have more innovation in the future that can also help us overcome some of these challenges that we've been discussing. Hello, welcome. I'm a family physician working at Ajbadem University School of Medicine in Istanbul, Turkey. And the second part of the CME is entitled The Ins and Outs of Once Weekly Insulins, Evaluating the Evidence at Potential Place in Therapy. And there we will discuss on current innovations with once weekly insulins. And I'm very pleased to welcome uh, my esteemed colleague and dear friend, Dr. Harpreet Bajaj from LMC Healthcare in Brampton, Ontario, Canada, to go through this part together. Hi, Harpreet. Hi, Vina, and welcome, everyone. Let's first start to uh, remind ourselves of the rationale for once weekly basal insulin therapy. First of all, it's about convenience, convenience for the patient and uh, their caretakers because of reduced treatment burden. And this would, of course, improve uh, their health-related quality of life. And um, because there's a potential for improved adherence and persistence, it's also likely to uh, result in improved short and long-term uh, therapeutic outcomes, the once-weekly insulin therapy. 
so, uh, Harpreet, uh, being the principal investigator of uh, some of the trials, um, could you please uh, walk us through the once weekly uh, basal insulin and how they compare with once daily basal insulins? Sure, uh, Pinar, it's my pleasure to do that. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, the injection burden is huge. Uh, uh, think about uh, having to inject 365 times in 365 days with the once daily basal insulin. And that's the minimum that uh, people uh, are used to doing. Uh, whereas if you, uh, if you fast forward to the paradigm of once weekly insulin, it'll be only 52 injections in a year, uh, which is much less burdensome and hopefully will also help with some of this uh, clinical inertia, both from the patient size, uh, side as well as from the healthcare practitioner side as well. Now, there are two uh, once-weekly basal insulins that are in late-stage uh, clinical development. Uh, uh, so the insulin FC-TORA alpha, uh, it has a long half-life and achieves that with this fusion protein that combines a single-chain variant of insulin with the human immunoglobulin FC domain. Uh, this uh, insulin FC-TORA alpha has completed phase two and is now undergoing phase three uh, results, uh, which, are, which are pending. On the other hand, ICODEC has already finished and already presented uh, the phase three results uh, from, uh, from the onwards program. This new uh, basal insulin uh, called ICODEC is an analog uh, that strongly but reversibly binds to albumin, and that's how it achieves its longer half-life to be able to use uh, it as a once-weekly injection. So let me show you uh, the data from the once-weekly basal insulin FC or the FC-TORA alpha, as it's uh, now called, uh, in type 2 diabetes. In phase two, uh, there have been two trials, and I'm uh, showing you the results of both of these trials. On the left is the insulin-naive uh, trial with people with type 2 diabetes, where uh, you can see the A1C reduction was similar for uh, the new once-weekly insulin compared to Deglodec. And on the right uh, uh, includes uh, participants who were previously uh, on a basal insulin daily and then were switched to different regimens on the once-weekly insulin compared to insulin Deglodec. And uh, the bottom line is that the A1C uh, reduction was about the same. And we'll see maybe by next year, we'll have results from the phase three program. As I mentioned, uh, the ICODEC, on the other hand, has completed the phase three. Uh, it's called the onwards program. And uh, let's look through all of the phase three trials in people with type two diabetes uh, that have been uh, presented and published. So onwards one, three, and five are, are uh, trials, randomized trials in people with uh, type 2 diabetes who are insulin naive. So they were not using insulin at baseline. And the trial duration uh, between 26 to 52 to 78 weeks uh, in these three trials, uh, all these three trials confirm not just non-inferiority on glycemic control, but also superiority. Uh, the estimated treatment difference between ICODEC versus the comparators, which could include Glargine U100, Degludec, or Glargine U300 was also included in onwards five. Uh, the estimated treatment difference was about 0.2% in favor of ICODEC in onwards one and three, 
And in onwards five, it was actually larger at about 0.4% A1C better compared to uh, the comparators once daily. Now note that in onwards five, there was also a titration app that was used to titrate the ICODEC as well. Potentially that helped uh, achieve better glycemic control uh, and not with increased hypoglycemia. However, as you can see at the bottom, uh, the hypoglycemia rates uh, of level two or level three hypoglycemia was quite low in across the board in insulin-naive patient populations. Uh, and similar between the comparators uh, is what, what we have. So if you put it into context in this insulin-naive patient uh, uh, trial population in all three trials, uh, this leads to about an event rate of um, uh, one event in, in three to four years uh, uh, for a patient who's treated with ICODEC, which I think is quite uh, low and, and quite uh, good compared uh, compared to the um, other basal insulins that we have, especially when we think about the convenience of the once weekly injection. These were insulin uh, experience populations, onwards two was basal insulin, and onwards four was basal bolus insulin uh, population. And so in those two trials as well, we see a significant reduction of uh, A1C. In onwards two, it was uh, superior uh, compared to the comparator, whereas onwards four, which was a basal bolus insulin, we see similar A1C reduction uh, to the Glargine U100. And then hypoglycemia rates similarly at the bottom, you can see uh, there were minor differences in onwards two uh, on the level two, level three hypoglycemia, uh, and on onwards four, which you'll think as a higher risk population for hypoglycemia, considering that that's the uh, participants with uh, who were already on a basal bolus insulin regimen with long-standing diabetes, the hypoglycemia rates were actually similar between ICODEC and Glargine U100, which is very, very reassuring. What is also very reassuring is not just the hemoglobin A1C and hypoglycemia, but also the CGM metrics uh, that was used in these uh, some of these trials. You can see the, uh, the uh, traffic lights of uh, green, yellow, red. If you uh, focus on the green, the green uh, in the ICODEC arm is similar or better compared to the comparators is what you can appreciate. For example, in onwards one, it was almost 72% of the people uh, at the end of uh, 52 weeks uh, that uh, achieved uh, uh, the targets uh, of uh, 70 to 180 milligrams per deciliter, 3.9 to 10 millimoles per liter, which was superior to the Glargine U100 comparator. And then similarly on onwards two and four, you can see the, um, the green portion is about 60 to 67% across the board and quite similar uh, between ICODEC and the comparators as well. Now, one of the key questions that has been asked also of this long-acting insulin is, will the duration of hypoglycemia be different with this insulin because it's such a long uh, half-life? And that was answered in this presentation um, uh, at the ADA recently, where we looked at uh, duration of CGM-derived hypoglycemia episodes. So this is any episodes less than 70 milligrams per deciliter or 3.9 millimoles per liter in the long-standing onwards two and onwards four trials, which are the uh, people who are already on basal or basal bolus insulin, right? So what you see in these uh, figures, which is like the clock uh, handle, if you will, um, uh, 
you can see the median of the minutes uh, that the duration of hypoglycemia was seen. So the duration of hypoglycemia on CGM at uh, various uh, time points within these trials is very similar for ICODEC versus the one's daily insulin. So with that, um, um, let me ask you, uh, Dr. Topsaver, how do you think uh, this may benefit from once weekly insulin? Um, maybe how do you put that into uh, context altogether into clinical use? Actually, everybody who is going to be uh, put on uh, basal insulin, and especially if the patient is um, reluctant to injectable therapy. So everybody who has needle phobia, injection anxiety, uh, they will be, be very, very happy that um, the injection will be just once a week. Um, then people who have a very active schedule and who sometimes uh, miss um, their injections and, and taking their drugs or, or people who uh, might be also slightly cognitively challenged, you know, type 2 diabetes is epidemiology um, uh, situated in the elderly population um, and people who already are on a basal uh, insulin uh, will, of course, uh, prefer to do it just once weekly and so on. So thank you very much, uh, dear Harpreet. It was a pleasure um, uh, talking to you about uh, once weekly um, basal insulin uh, therapy in type 2 diabetes. Yeah, it was a pleasure, um, uh, Pinar, sharing this. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, look forward to the new paradigm, uh, hopefully in uh, clinics. Thank you. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.